On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Ephesians chapter 5, I want to be, I want to read verses uh, 1 through 7 again this morning. So Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and I'll be reading through verse 7. Beginning now. In verse 1, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India in the first half of the 20th century, and she is best known today for her work among at-risk Indian children. She was born in County Down, Ireland in 1867, And her church-going family ensured that young Amy was brought up knowing the Lord. And in her teens, Amy developed a burden for the shawlies. You say, what in the world is a shawlie? Well, they were poor girls who wore shawls uh, over their heads instead of the more expensive hats. And she had a real burden for these shawlies in Belfast. And she started a Bible class for them, and the work grew. Eventually, uh, they needed a building to hold 500 people. And after hearing Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, speak at a convention, Amy knew that God was calling her to foreign missions. And so in 1895, at 28 years old, Amy Carmichael arrived in Bangalore, India, to begin her missionary career from which she never took a furlough and never returned home to Ireland. Amy Carmichael settled in southern India, where she served for a time with the missionary Thomas Walker and his wife as she applied herself to learning the Tamil language and the Indian customs and caste system. And in March of 1901, a little girl named Prina, which means pearl eyes, came to Amy. Prina was seven years old. And she had just escaped from a nearby Hindu temple where she had been held against her will. The Hindu temple system at that time had temple prostitutes, and Prina had been sold to the temple to be trained in prostitution. And she had tried to escape twice before, but uh, was caught both times, and as punishment for her attempted escapes, uh, Prina was beaten and her hands were branded with hot irons. But on her third attempt to escape her misery, Prina ended up at the door of Amy Carmichael. And it was a divinely appointed meeting, and Amy saw it, as just that. This young missionary determined then to save Prina despite the protest of the local Hindu temple, and eventually Amy was allowed to keep Prina. And so Amy Carmichael found what was to be her life's work. The walkers helped Amy find a place where she could care for the girls who were coming for help, and Amy's new place of ministry was in Donavur, situated in, in Tamil, Nadu, 30 miles from the southern tip of India, and thus began the Donavur Fellowship. And here for the next 50 years, Amy gave herself to saving unwanted, abandoned, and abused girls like Prina and the babies that were born to the temple prostitutes. 
Amy Carmichael lived by the motto, love to live and live to love. And she made sure that Donover was a safe place for the children to learn about the love of Christ. And, and it was a happy place full of singing and learning and, and prayer. And by 1904, Amy had 17 girls under her care. And by 1913, the Donover Fellowship was home to 130. And then in 1918, the family expanded even more, adding a home for young boys, most of whom were the children of temple prostitutes. In Amy Carmichael's lifetime, the Donover Fellowship helped approximately 2,000 children. And the facilities grew to include nurseries, school buildings, boys and girls housing, and a house of prayer and a hospital. In 1932, Amy Carmichael was badly injured in a fall, and her injuries left her bedridden for almost 20 years until her death. And so from her room, Amy continued to minister to the Donover family, writing copiously and receiving many visitors, and Amy Carmichael died in 1951 at the age of 83. Before dying, she asked that no stone be put over her grave, but the children she cared deeply for decided to put a birdbath over her grave with the single inscription, Ama, which means mother. Amy Carmichael wrote 35 books, including histories, biographies, and in books of poetry. She was as eloquent as she was prolific. One of her books is, is the classic devotional, If. And this is a quote from that book. She said, If there be any reserve in my giving to him who so loved that he gave his dearest for me, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Another quote of hers from the book, God's Missionary. She said, ours should be the love that asks not how little, but how much. The love that pours out its all and, and revels in the joy of having something to pour on the feet of its beloved. Love that laughs at limits, rather does not see them, would not heed them if it did. Amy Carmichael lived out her saying, one can give without loving but one cannot love without giving. One man said of her, her life was the most fragrant, the most joyfully sacrificial that I ever knew. And one more quote from Amy Carmichael from one of her books. She said, we cannot love each other too much. For he said, love one another as I have loved you. We cannot set the standard too high, for it is not ours to move about as we will. It is our Lord's, and he has set it high. And when it comes to love, our Lord has indeed set the standard very high. And in the verse we're going to look at this morning, Paul tells us uh, that we're to imitate God by walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And we need to remember the context in which this was said. In chapter 4, Paul uh, began laying out for us what walking worthy of our calling or living out the Christian life looks like, practically speaking. And, and he essentially said, this is how you as new creations in Christ, created after the likeness of God in, in true righteousness and holiness, are supposed to live. And then in verses 3 to 16, he dealt with living out the Christian life within the church. And then beginning in chapter 4, verse 17, Paul began dealing with how we're to walk worthy of our calling in our personal lives, not only in our relation to fellow believers, but also to the world around us. In verses 17 to 24, he said that this means no longer living the way we, we lived as unbelievers, because we're new creations in Christ. We're to, we're to put off the old self and its sinful habits and patterns. We're to be continually renewed in our minds, and then we must put on the new self and live in a way that is consistent with that newness. And then in verses 25 to 32, he gave us examples of what our conduct as Christians should and, and should not be. And then drawing his exhortations in uh, verses 25 to 32 to a close, along with introducing a new section in, that runs from chapter uh, 5, verse 1 through 14, in which he addresses the subject of moral purity, Paul begins with a very important admonition in verses 1 and 2. 
And last week in verse 1, Paul told us the way in which we're to live the Christian life. He said we are, to, we are continually and increasingly to become imitators of God as beloved children. We're to imitate God as beloved children. But what does that look like? What does that look like? I mean, what, what does that entail? Well, Paul tells us in verse 2. Look at verse 2. And we are going to spend all of our time this morning in verse 2. Look at what he says. We're to imitate God how? And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so we're to be imitators of God as dear children. How? Paul says, walk in love. Walk in love. Now, of course, it's impossible to imitate God in everything, but Paul's exhortation to walk in love explains more specifically what is involved in being such imitators. To imitate God, he says, is to walk in love. And this is the fifth time that Paul has used the word walk in Ephesians. In chapter 2, verse 2, he mentions or he mentioned how we once walked in our sins. In chapter 2, verse 10, uh, he says that we are to walk in the good works which God prepared beforehand for us. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says that we should walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In chapter 4, verse 17, he said that we should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And he's going to go on to say in chapter 5, verse 8, that we must walk as children of light. And then in verse 15, that we must walk carefully, not as unwise men, but as wise. Walk in love, he says. So we need to define the word walk. We, we did earlier in our study, but we need to do it again this morning to be refreshed, uh, to remember what this word walk means. This word walk in its literal sense of going along or moving about on foot at a moderate pace is found numerous times in the Gospels. However, this same verb is more often used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament epistles in a metaphorical way. And the metaphorical use of the word walk in the Bible refers to the way an individual lives or conducts his or her life. And in this sense, it means to, to follow a certain course of life or to conduct oneself in a certain way. And so in other words, it simply refers to how you and I live our lives. It speaks of our conduct and our behavior. And the tense of the word uh, indicates that this is an ongoing action that is habitual. So this is to be our habitual way of life. And the word walk also implies a step-by-step, slow-but-steady process. And so walking in love is to be an ongoing, steady process throughout our entire lives. I mean, Paul has already said that we must uh, walk in a manner worthy of our calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. He has said that we must speak the truth in love, in chapter 4, verse 15, so that the body builds itself up in love. And later in chapter 5, he's going to tell us that love is the main responsibility of the Christian husband. And in chapter 6, that incorruptible love for Jesus Christ is the mark of all believers. And the point is simply, the longer you are a Christian, the more your life should be characterized by love. I mean, as Paul uh, said to the Thessalonians, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, he said, brothers, to do this more and more. Or in Philippians 1.9, he said, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So this walking in love is a lifelong process. It's something that, that we must continually be growing in. And so Paul is saying that as dearly loved children, we are to imitate God by walking in love. This is to be our habitual way of life. This is what should characterize the life of every believer. There are no exception clauses. No special dispensations given to anyone. This is, to be, uh, this is how every believer is to walk. 
We are to walk this way and live this way because we are new creations in Christ created for this very thing. I mean, this is to be the very atmosphere in which we live. This should be the regular and characteristic way that we relate to one another. I mean, Paul says, walk in love. And it's important that we note that Paul is not suggesting that well, you know, this might be good to do if and when the mood and the circumstances are right. You know, if you feel like it. It's not what he's saying. Like Jesus, Paul is issuing an unconditional command. Walk in love. I mean, it's not up for debate. This is what we are commanded to do. And not only by Paul, but also by the Lord Jesus himself. If we're going to walk in love, then we, we, we have to have a biblical, not a cultural definition of love. Because our culture uses the word love for, uh, for everything, from I love pizza to I love you know, chili, I, I love my truck, you know, I, I love my dog, uh, love my wife. And well, hopefully there's a difference in those references. <laughs> right? <laughs> sure hope so. But also, we tend to view love as a, a pleasant emotion, you know, a, a good feeling, a, a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling of some kind. You know, it's just kind of magical when it hits, but when it goes away, it's like, oh well, can't do anything to get it back. That's the culture's idea of love. And so it's important to define this biblical love that we're speaking about here. The love that Paul speaks of here is not simply a human affection. It is not a love of close friendship or brotherly love. It is not an ecumenical love. In other words, a, a spirit of tolerance toward others without any thought of convictions. It is not a romantic, emotional love that, that ebbs and flows and, and sometimes disappears altogether. This isn't a sexual love. It, it is not a sentimental love. It isn't purely emotional. It isn't fickle. It isn't conditional. In other words, it, it's not based on the worthiness, the attractiveness, or the response of the one loved. I mean, conditional love, if, if, with conditional love, if the conditions are not met, then there's no obligation to love. In other words, if we don't get, then we don't give. Well, that's not what this is. None of those describe the love that Paul is speaking of here. So what is he, what's the love that he's speaking of here? Well, the Greek word that Paul uses here for love is agape, which you know is the love that God himself is. It is the highest form of love. It is an unconditional, sacrificial love. It is a love that impels one to sacrifice oneself for the highest good of the object love, regardless of response and regardless of the cost. It is not a feeling, it is an attitude and an action. That is why it can be commanded. It is a love that acts. A love that manifests itself in selfless, humble service to meet someone else's need, no matter how low the service, no matter how unworthy and undeserving the person, no matter how difficult and inconvenient it may be. But there's more to this love than, than selfless, sacrificial service to meet the needs of others. Because it is quite possible to uh, selflessly and sacrificially meet needs to the point of giving away all your possessions and even giving your life as a martyr and to do so without love. And if that's the case, then all the works done, no matter how selfless or sacrificial, are nothing in the eyes of God. They're nothing more than worthless religious displays. Because according to the Word of God in 1 Corinthians 13, without love, we're nothing. And without love, what we do amounts to nothing. As one commentator said, as far as God is concerned, the loveless person produces nothing, is nothing, and gains nothing. Paul also tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, that this love, which is to mark our lives and be reflected in our relationships with one another, is a love that is patient and kind, a love which does not envy or boast, a love that is not arrogant or rude, 
a love that does not insist on its own way, a love that is not irritable or resentful, a love that does not rejoice in sin, but rejoices in the truth, a love that bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things. It's a love, Paul says there, that never ends. And this love is so much an absolute of the Christian life that after Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another, he said to them, by this, by loving one another with this love, by this, he said, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, this love that we're speaking about this morning uh, is what separates Jesus' own. This is what separates believers from the world. This is what makes us different. This, Jesus said, is how people will know you're my disciples if you have love, agape love, for one another. I mean, Paul, uh, Paul didn't say this, neither did Jesus, that they'll know you by your, your great knowledge, your theological acumen, or by how well-read you are, or how articulate or eloquent you are, or by your religious activities and or service. He said, they will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. Or as Paul says here, we're to walk in love. We are to walk in love. And of course, the ability to walk in love is, is not natural. It doesn't come to us naturally. Rather, what we're talking about here is something that is supernatural. This is something that requires a new nature. And when we're born again and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you know, we were adopted as God's children. And as a result of this new and amazing relationship, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, uh, Paul writes in Romans 5.5, 5, thereby we have been given the ability to love far beyond what we might think we are capable of. But we're not only given the ability to love, the Holy Spirit who indwells us also enables and empowers us to walk in love. Because what God calls us to do, He also by His Spirit enables us to do. doesn't mean we don't have to put forth great effort, we do. But he enables and empowers us to walk in love. And so, as Christians, we have absolutely no excuse. None. Zero. Zippo. Nada. No excuse for not loving. One man wrote, We do not have to manufacture love. We only have to share the love we've been given. We do not have to be humanly taught to love because we ourselves have been taught by God to love one another. We are therefore told to pursue love, to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, to increase and abound in love for one another and for all, to abound in love more and more, to be sincere in love, to be unified in love, to love one another earnestly, and to stir up one another to love. You see, love is the sum and substance of what it means to be a Christian. Love is the chief virtue that should govern all that we say and do. One man said, without love, knowledge is just a selfish and arrogant acquisition. Without love, purity is self-righteousness. Without love, zeal is an aimless endeavor. Without love, hope is a fool's deception. You see, nothing is acceptable to God if it's not motivated by love, including knowledge, faith, and obedience. Love is the beauty of the believer dispelling the ugly sins of the flesh that destroy unity. There's no substitute for love. None. Right theology, religious works, I mean, nothing, absolutely nothing substitutes for love. Love should govern all that we say and do because without love, it's all meaningless. I mean, motives matter. And that is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. I mean, love plays an indispensable role in our lives individually and, and corporately as God's people. And the Christian life is to be marked by faith, hope, and love. 
I mean, these cardinal virtues are foundational to the regenerated life as well as to a healthy local church. Yet, um, yet even among these three, Paul says, the greatest of these is what? Love. You know, John wrote in 1 John 4.16 that God is love. And that is the Bible's simplest description of God and therefore God's description of himself. I mean, love is the greatest manifestation of the character of God. And as John said in the rest of uh, ch- uh, chapter four, verse, uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So therefore, the simplest and most profound description of Christian character also is love. Love is the lifestyle that reveals what genuine believers are all about. And look, no, no true believer can say, well, you know what, I'm saved by grace through faith, uh, whether I love others or not. Not true. You're living a fool's deception if you think that. Because John said in 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Spiritual death. In 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8, John said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And then in 1 John 4, 20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Paul says here in verse 2, walk in love. And I suppose at this point, uh, we should all ask ourselves, you know, does walking in love characterize our lives? Does walking in love characterize our lives? Does walking in love characterize your life? Does agape love, a love that acts, a love that manifests itself in selfless, humble service to meet someone else's need, no matter how low the service, no matter how unworthy and undeserving the person, no matter how difficult and inconvenient it may be, does that characterize your life? One man said, I would remind you that our realization of the love of God and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be measured by the extent to which we are manifesting this love in our lives. Isaac Watts was perfectly right when he wrote, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And then he said, It is much easier to sing it than to practice it. But it is the practice alone that proves that you are really doing it. You know, walk in love sounds good until we have to actually do it. And we all fail at it, don't we? We all fail at it. And so we thank God for His grace. We thank God for a Savior who forgives us and the Holy Spirit who enables and empowers us to love and to walk in love, though we do so very imperfectly. But the fact that we fail at it is not to be an excuse to not seek to live this way. Grace is never an excuse for sin. And Paul now gives us the pattern of love to follow. You know, children often learn uh, to draw by, by tracing sure you've all done that. You know, the more carefully you know, they, they trace the picture, the closer their copy becomes to the original. But when it comes to walking in love, we have a pattern to follow. And that pattern is the Lord Jesus. He's the pattern by whom every believer is to trace his or her life. Look back at verse 2. And walk in love, how? As Christ loved us. Just as we are to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave us, 
we are also to walk in love as Christ loved us. Our love must be modeled after Christ's love. Well, what's the measure of Christ's love? Well, the measure of Christ's love is that he loved us. Which is just an amazing, amazing truth. Now, unfortunately, because of uh, so much false teaching and error in the church today, I mean, people expect that they should be loved by God because, oh, well, they're worth it. No. The fact that God would love us, people such as us, is an amazing, amazing truth. Especially when we consider what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 5. Before we were born again, Paul said we were not only weak and without strength, he said we were ungodly, we were sinners, we were enemies of God. And then according to Paul in Romans chapter 1, we were haters of God. Romans chapter 3, Paul says that we were not righteous, we were totally sinful, we had no spiritual understanding, we were not seeking God, we had turned aside gone our own way, we were worthless, that is, useless for God's divine purposes, we did not do good, the best we could do was not good according to God's standard. And as as Paul wrote to Titus in Titus chapter 3, we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's what we were. And Paul described uh, us in our unregenerate state in Ephesians chapter 4 when he said, we walked as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. We were darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us due to our hardness of heart. We had become callous and given ourselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is who we were. That's who we were. And there was nothing in us to recommend us to God in any way. There was nothing in us to draw His love. There was nothing in us to attract His love. But Paul says here, Christ loved us. He loved us. And we weren't lovable. Yet He loved us. You know, it's been a quite a while, number, good number of years ago, and I've shared this before, but it's been quite a while in the past. But a number of years ago, I was waiting in a, in a waiting area in the hospital while someone in the church was having a procedure, and there were, other, there were patients actually there and people waiting to have procedures as well. And as I was sitting there, I looked, and, and there was a, a mother, I, don't, I can't remember, you know, probably, I want to say, in her 30s. And she was sitting there and and holding on her lap a young child, had a hospital gown on. And this little child had been so severely burned. An entire head and face, ears were gone. Uh, Just scarred and, and disfigured beyond belief. Hands were burned so that there were fingers missing on both hands. And as the the child uh, tried to speak and cried, it was just really raspy, and you could tell that probably vocal cord damage from the heat. And the little child began to cry. And that mother just squeezed that baby, just kissed him all over his burnt head. And really, he was really hard to look at, honestly. But she just showered her love upon him, just kissed him all over his little burned head. You know, that's a, that was a good picture to me of the way that God loves us. Because we were created in the image of God, but that image was marred and disfigured by sin. And we were vile. His enemies, nothing in us to draw us to God, but yet He loved us. He loved us. 
And you see, loved ones, it, it is only to the extent that we realize what horrible and vile creatures we are by nature and as the result of sin, that we begin to understand the measure of the love of God and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we say He loved us, that is the most amazing truth. Because we were not deserving of his love, not worthy of his love, and there was nothing in us to draw that love. He chose to love us. That's why he loves us. And you know, it's one thing for people to love us who don't know all the wicked things we've done, who don't know our wicked thoughts and motivations. But it is another thing altogether for the holy God the sovereign high king of heaven to love us, knowing every wicked thing we have ever done and ever will do. And yet he loved us. Paul says he loved us. And nothing can change that. The Lord Jesus Christ loves all who belong to him with the fullest measure of love. In fact, the Apostle John wrote in John chapter 13, verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved his own. I mean, certainly God loves the world. John 3.16 says he does. He loves all men. But in that verse, John is speaking about a Christ unique and special redeeming love for his own. All of those were given to him by the Father in eternity past. John said, having loved his own. That speaks of the past. It speaks of the fact that, that he loved us in eternity past. Having loved his own. I mean, he had, he had always loved them. He, he, he had always loved us. There was never a time when he did not love us. Before the heavens and earth were made and the stars were hung in place, Christ had loved and received his people from his Father, wrote their names upon his heart. I mean, this love of his is infinite. Jesus doesn't love his own with a, with a little of his love. No, he said, as the Father has loved me, even so I have loved you. I mean, think of that. The Father's love for the Son is incomprehensibly great. The, the Father loves the Son infinitely, perfectly, utterly. And the Son loves His own in the same way. And that is why John wrote, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. The word end means perfection or completeness. You know, fully, utterly, to the end. It signifies that his love is without variation and without end. His love is eternal. He loves infinitely, both in capacity and in time. He loves us to the end. He loves us to the uttermost, infinitely, utterly, completely, and perfectly in such a way that we cannot tell or conceive or describe or imagine how much he loves us. He loves his own to the utmost stretch of love. I mean, there is no love like his. I mean, all the loves in the world compressed into one would not even remotely come close to equaling his love. He cannot love us any better. He cannot love us more wisely. He cannot love us more intensely. That's not possible. Whatever the perfection of love may be, that's the love that Jesus has for his own. There is no love in all the world like the love of Christ for his people. He loved us. And you know what? That's something that should excite us. He loved us. The measure of Christ's love is that he loved us. And looking back at verse 2, Paul says, walk in love as Christ loved us and how did he do that? He gave himself up for us. See, Jesus' love is not a mere feeling or emotion because, again, agape love is not an emotion. It is a love that acts, an unconditional, sacrificial love. 
Again, a love that, that impels one to sacrifice oneself for the highest good of the object love, regardless of response, regardless of the cost. It's not a feeling, it's an attitude and an action. And we're told here that Christ loved us and he manifested his love for us and that he gave himself up for us. He didn't merely give up his possessions, though he certainly gave up many. I mean, Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, which means uh, he didn't regard it as something to be held on to. You know, he didn't hold on to his rights and privileges, the, the rights and privileges of his eternal deity, the, the signs and, and symbols of his everlasting glory. Rather, he emptied himself, not of his deity, he always remained fully God. But he emptied himself, which means he laid aside things which he possessed as a right. He didn't hold on uh, to those rights and privileges of the Godhead he enjoyed with the Father. He, he just laid those things aside. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. But that's not all. Jesus humbled himself far beyond simply laying aside his rights and privileges. In Philippians 2, 7, Paul says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he not only took on human nature, but came in the form of a servant. He humbled himself to a degree that we can't even become, uh, begin to comprehend in, in becoming a man. But even went beyond that, to become a servant. He functioned as a servant, one without rights and privileges who came to serve others. I mean, just think for a moment about all that was involved in Christ Jesus our Lord emptying himself. But Paul's point here is not that he merely gave up all those things or laid them aside, but that he gave himself. Christ loved us and he gave himself up for us. In Ephesians 5.25, Paul says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, the greatest expression of love is not, what it, not that it gives things or even that it gives up things, but rather that it gives itself. Itself. Christ Jesus gave himself. I mean, he said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life, his very self, he gave it all up as a willing sacrifice. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Our Lord Jesus deliberately, willingly, voluntarily gave himself. He laid his life down in loving obedience to the will of the Father. His love was a self-giving, sacrificial love, not predicated on anything that we have done. Nothing. It was a faithful love, a generous love, a lavish, incomprehensible love, a love that demanded the greatest sacrifice. And so he humbled himself and sacrificed himself. I mean, it was an unimaginably costly sacrifice to rescue us from a fate far worse than death. And the Apostle Paul could never get over the fact that Jesus loved him and gave himself for him. And you know, Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. But our Lord willingly sacrificed his life, not for friends, but on behalf of sinners. Sinners, the ungodly enemies who had no love for him and who, in fact, despised him. The ultimate demonstration of love is Jesus' act 
of laying down his life for all that belong to him. And his great love serves as the hallmark, the hallmark example defining what it truly means to love. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. For us. Which means he gave himself for the, you know, the benefit of his people, but it means so much more than that. It means much more than merely for our benefit. This word for also speaks of substitution. He also gave himself in our place. You see, Paul is making reference here to the great doctrine of Christ's substitutionary atonement. Jesus bore the penalty for our sin, the the righteous judgment and wrath of God that our sin deserved, and he did so as a substitute. In other words, he died in our place and for our sake, and thereby made atonement for our sin, reconciling us to God, or God to us and us to God. As John said in 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, propitiation means to turn away the wrath of God. This is the very heart of the gospel. That's the whole meaning of the cross. Jesus came into the world to die in our place to rescue us from the sin that would damn us for all eternity and forever shut us out of the presence of God. And all our sin and guilt and shame was laid upon Him and He willingly died in our place and for our sin, taking our punishment so that we might be set free from sin and its penalty so that we might love and worship and serve Him. He poured out his soul on the death with all the desire of his heart because he had determined to pay our debt to God and to redeem us from hell. And so for the joy set before him, he willingly endured the cross and laid down his life. He gave himself up for us. And he did so, Paul says in the last part of the verse, notice, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now here Paul is using the language of the Old Covenant sacrificial system. The words offering and sacrifice uh, refer to all the types of sacrifices most likely. And a fragrant offering pictures the the smoke of of the burnt offering as it was burned upon the altar and ascended heavenward as as a pleasing aroma. And this word is used figuratively for God's acceptance of a sacrifice because of the sincerity and the wholeheartedness of the worshiper. However, in the Old Testament, many animal sacrifices, even when properly prepared, were not accepted and received by God as a fragrant offering, a, a pleasing aroma. Because the offerer had a wrong attitude and a heart that was far from God. You know, these people, he said, draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That person offering a sacrifice, it, it, was, not, it was anything but pleasing to God. But Christ's offering, his offering and sacrifice of himself for fallen man is depicted as the true and perfect sacrifice toward which the whole Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to. And his perfect sacrifice fulfilled all, all of the ritual sacrifices of the Old Testament and it pleased and it glorified the Father. He was per- the Father was perfectly satisfied because Christ's sacrifice satisfied the demands of his holy law. It made the way for man to be reconciled to God and have his sins forgiven. And then it demonstrated in the most complete and perfect way God's sovereign, perfect, divine love. One man said, the sweetest fragrance, the most beautiful aroma that God has ever detected emanating from this planet was the aroma of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus that was offered once and for all on the cross. Christ gave himself up for us because of his love for us. 
You know, it, it is only as we see Jesus as the perfect sinless sacrifice, as, as the substitute who voluntarily put himself in our place to receive our punishment, that we begin to understand and to grasp the magnitude of the eternal love of God. And Christ loved us with a self-giving, sacrificial love. And therefore, He gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice. But if you'll notice, it was a, a sacrifice, an offering and a sacrifice to God. To God. It was to please God. This was the hallmark of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. He said in John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. You see, Jesus didn't come from heaven to please Himself. He came to die the just for the unjust, first and foremost, to glorify and please the Father. It was first and foremost for the glory of God. And then secondly, to bring us to God, to provide for our salvation. And his sacrificial love for us was a sacrifice that both glorified and pleased the Father. And loved ones, in the same way, when we walk in sacrificial love for others, it is a sacrifice that both glorifies and pleases our Heavenly Father. But on the other hand, you know, the absence of love the absence of love is a sure sign that we do not truly love God. Again, let me read 1 John 4, 20 and, and verse 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Imitating God means imitating His Son, which means walking as He walked. John said in 1 John 2, uh, the end of verse 5 and verse 6, by this we may know that we are in Him. By this, he's saying we know that we're in Christ. In other words, by this we know we're, we're born again. We're in Christ. We belong to Him. Whoever says He abides in Him, in other words, whoever says He abides in Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Believers are to walk as he walked. I mean, if we're to love as, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, and we are, then we're to live lives of unconditional, costly, sacrificial love Again, that manifests itself in serving and meeting the needs of others regardless of response, regardless of the cost, no matter how unworthy and undeserving the person or how difficult or inconvenient it may be. This love should, should govern all that we say and do. And this is the pattern set for us and commanded of us by our Lord Jesus who said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. To walk in love as Christ walked in love and gave himself up for us is to lay down our lives for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Well, none of us will probably ever be called to literally lay down our lives for one another. But in saying that, the way things are going, perhaps some of us may be called to do that. I don't know. But one thing I, I, I know and I'm sure about is that we are all called, all believers are called to lay down our lives in sacrificial love and living for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, in a world where uh, we're tempted to advertise the earthly benefits of the faith, Paul reminds us that if we're going to be like Jesus, 
You know, if we're going to walk as he walked, well, then we must offer and sacrifice ourselves. I mean, there's no life of love without a degree of giving and dying. In a world full of people caught up in sinful practices and attitudes, living like Jesus for the sake of others will involve both the giving of ourselves and the dying to self. And we should understand that this level of sacrificial love that we're speaking about here is not what we're to arrive at after so many years of discipleship. No, this is the level of love that all Christians are called to the moment they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is basic Christianity, Christianity 101. And this is why Jesus never tired of telling would-be followers to count the cost. He always told them to count the cost involved in following him. And so as Paul continues to lay out for us what, what living the Christian life looks like practically speaking, he calls us to look at Christ and to see the total commitment to each other that is required if we're to walk in love as Christ loved us, if we're going to love like God loves us. And you read this verse and it's like, Ooh, these are challenging words, aren't they? Very challenging. I mean, love is not some nice, warm, gentle feeling or something that simply sounds good when we talk about it or sing about it. It is costly. It is costly. And it involves real, personal sacrifice. And there's not much talk in the church today about sacrifice and sacrificial living. In fact, it's become so compromised, so watered down and so bad that we think coming to corporate worship is a sacrifice. We think serving the Lord is sacrifice. We think regular, continual, faithful giving is sacrifice. We think... We think things that are just basic Christianity are sacrificed. None of those things are sacrificed. None of them. Not one, not one of those things is a sacrifice. Those are simply the things that are expected of every servant, every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, Jesus said to his disciples, he said this in Luke 17.10, he said, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, so when you've done everything that you've been commanded, Jesus says, I want you to say this. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Corporate worship serving the body of Christ with the gifts that God has given you and enables and empowers you to use, giving faithfully of your, uh, the way God has blessed you according to how he has blessed you. None of those things are sacrificial. Those are just things that are expected of a faithful servant of God. We don't even know what sacrifice is anymore. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 give us a little hint where Paul said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. 1 John 3, 16-18, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does, a love, how does God's love abide in him? It's rhetorical. Answer, it doesn't. And so he said, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Loving in this way that we're called to love is costly, and it involves real, personal sacrifice. And as members of the body of Christ, 
You know, as God's dearly loved children. I mean, this is how we as Christian men and women are to live and to behave toward one another. It is this sort of love that puts the other first which will build up the body of Christ. You know, the love that is prepared to put aside our own comforts and well-being for the sake of the other and that always seeks the best for those around us. It's this sort of love that will demonstrate the worship and thanksgiving that is due to the Lord who so willingly gave Himself for His people. And I know that some will say, well, look, I know that God loves me as His dear child and that Jesus died for my sins and He lives in my heart. Okay. Fair enough. Then let me ask you. If he is living in you, and you are his, are you walking as he walked? Are you walking in love? Because that's the standard. That's the standard. That's how Jesus said that we're to love one another. So again, we need to ask ourselves, are we walking in love? You know, are you walking in love? Loving God, loving Christ, loving one another as Christ has loved us, loving your neighbor as yourself. Love is the true evidence that we belong to Jesus Christ. But if there's no love for one another, meaning if there's no love for one another as it's presented to us in Scripture, It's not only an egregious sin. It very well could be an indication of a lack of true spiritual life. That's how important this question is. So are you walking in love? And remember, walk means lifestyle. This is your habitual, this is habitually, the way you live habitually. You you walk in love. Is that your lifestyle? So if someone were to characterize your lifestyle by the way you spend your time, what you think about, how you act, would they say that you walk in love? You know, so many of us are walking in pride or walking in materialism or walking in ambition or in selfish concern. I mean, these are the things that drive us. But God says to us, as His dear children, that we're to walk in love. We're to walk in love, cultivating kindness and a tender, forgiving heart, offering our own lives as a fragrant offering and sacrifice in Christ's name. One man wrote, those who are given God's nature through Jesus Christ are commanded to love as God loves. In Christ, it is now our nature to love just as it is God's nature to love because His nature is now our nature. For a Christian not to love is for him to live against his own nature as well as against God's. Lovelessness is is therefore more than a failure or shortcoming. It is sin. Willful disobedience of God's command and disregard of His example. To love as God loves is to love because God loves, because we are to be imitators of God and because we are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. You see, the Gospel came to transform every aspect of our lives. It brings the life of God into our souls. And so how then can we as Christians not reflect something of His love in our relationships with others? If the Lord loves us, you know, His imperfect children with a perfect love, how can we not love other believers who have the same imperfections that we do? And God loves us as believers, even though we continue to sin and fall short of His perfection and His glory. He loves us when we forget Him, when we disobey Him, when we deny Him, 
when we, re, when we fail to return his love and when we grieve his Holy Spirit. And if that's the case, and it is, then how can we not love other believers? And if divine love led Jesus to sacrifice himself for unworthy and ungrateful sinners, how can we not give ourselves to fellow sinful people, believers as well as unbelievers, in his name? To walk in love means to give ourselves for others. And this is what Christ, our perfect example, did. Amazing fact. Just absolutely, incredibly amazing. He loved us. And the proof of his love is that he gave himself up for us in death as an offering and a sacrifice to God. I hope we never tire of hearing that. Little boy was following his dad who was walking in fresh snow. And he yelled out to his dad, Look, Daddy, I'm walking in your footsteps. We know our Heavenly Father in the person of his own dear Son walked in love to the cross for us. So may God, the Holy Spirit, enable and empower us as we seek to imitate Him by walking in His footsteps of sacrificial love. Let's pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love